1: Thank you for downloading or streaming this episode of Band Biographies. You can find more episodes at bandbiographies.com. That's B-A-N-N-E-D biographies.com. If you enjoy it, why not leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts? Apparently, it helps get the show up the charts so more people can see it, to download it, and then to leave further five-star reviews. Another way you can help is by telling as many friends as possible to give it a download. Please do reach out on Twitter at BandBiogs, on Instagram at Band Biographies, search on Facebook for Band Biographies, or by emailing bandbiographies at gmail.com. But most of all, enjoy. Hello and welcome to this special interview episode of the Band Biographies podcast. Proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network, where, as long as you're a music lover... And if you're not, what are you doing listening to this podcast? You can find a podcast about whatever you're into. Visit pantheonpodcasts.com or at pantheonpods on social media. They've got what you're looking for. I'm Tom Austin Morgan, your host, and on this episode, I'm talking to the bassist of the Boston-based garage punk band Nervous Eaters. This interview was made possible thanks to Peter Ferrioli at Pantheon Podcasts, and Mike Kubilos at Earshot Media, and I'm incredibly grateful to both of them. This episode largely deals with the new Nervous Eaters single and upcoming album, as well as about Brad's life and career to this point. And boy, has he had a career. So before I roll the interview, let me give you a potted history of the Nervous Eaters. Formed in the mid-70s, the Nervous Eaters would eventually become the house band for the legendary Boston punk rock club The Rat, where they established themselves as a leading punk rock band in the Northeast, playing with a who's who of punk and new wave luminaries, including The Police, The Ramones, The Cars, Patti Smith, Dead Boys, Iggy Pop, The Stranglers, The Go Go's, and many others. The band's original drummer, the late Jeff Wilkinson, let the band rehearse in his family basement. His mother, Florence, fed the band at these rehearsals. Band leader Steve Cataldo explained, We'd come up from the basement at different times to grab something to eat, and she'd say, Why don't you all come up and sit down and have a meal? You're such a bunch of nervous eaters. So it stuck. It wasn't the coolest name to hit the town, but it seemed like a good idea at the time. We had a good laugh over it, and we loved Florence. We are the nervous eaters. At their home base, the black-walled, sticky-floored basement club in Boston's Kenmore Square, The Rat, The Eaters played snarling, self-depreciating, lust for life blasts like Shit for Brains, Get Stuffed, Last Chance, Just Head and I'm a Degenerate. Loretta was their first release on 45 on Rat Records in 1976 and gained local and national college airplay. The buzz built and their popularity grew. The Cars' Rick Okasek produced a demo tape which got the band signed to Elektra Records. They toured around the world, but the album stalled, going astray from the start with the wrong assigned label producer and a lack of follow-through from the record company. The original Eaters dissolved, but came back in the mid-80s with a new line-up. The Reborn Eaters launched a salvo called Hot Steel and Acid in 1986, a far better disc that sounded like the band, on the indie label Ace of Hearts. Producer Rich Hart captured The Eater's vicious vintage punk sound, but it only went as far as a Boston indie record label could take it. The band has been revived a few times over the years with various lineups. The current version, formed in 2018, includes three other Boston rock veterans. Bassist Brad Haline, who you're soon to hear all about. Drummer David McLean of Willie Alexander's Boom Boom Band and guitarist and vocalist Adam Sherman of Private Lightning, and of course band leader Steve Cataldo on guitar and vocals. Between them they have recorded and or toured with such artists as Ministry, Iggy Pop, Amy Mann, Jane Wealdin of the Go-Go's, Susan Tedeschi, Jimmy Vaughan, Lenny Kaye and many others. You can find Nervous Eaters at their own website www.nervouseaters.net. On Facebook.com slash nervous eaters and on Instagram at nervous.eaters. And you can find Brad Haleen at his website, bradhalen.com. That's B R A D H A L L E N.com. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Brad Haleen of the Nervous Eaters. Brad helene from the Nervous Eaters. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. And obviously I've just introduced the Nervous Eaters in the intro there, but when did you get the call to join the band? And were you, had you been aware of them previously?
2: Well, yeah. Any, I mean, I, I've been living in Boston since 78, and anybody that was in the local music scene is certainly aware of them because the Nervous Eaters are, with a couple other local bands are pretty much single-handedly responsible for the template of original rock and roll music and that mm-hmm. at that time period the eaters started in like 75ish uh and along with them like with the real kids which was is another great rock and roll band out of boston they they aren't really punk bands although they were in that scene and they played loud and they played fast but the eaters are uh, steve cataldo is a very deep guy i mean he he's his influences are you know like everything from chicago blues all the chess stuff to James Brown, to Southern Soul stuff, Otis Redding and all that, mm. to all the British invasion stuff. Animals, Kinks, Dave Clark Five, Beatles Stones. Uh, and then, you know, because we were kids during the seventies, uh, you know, the Ramones and the Clash and the Jam and the Buzzcocks and all those great bands that that came along when at that time or that that influence is in there too. So
1: Yeah, there's a lot of influence in there. I've gone back and listened to as much as I can before sitting down and talking to you today. And there's definitely, you can hear that blues and more kind of classic rock and roll influence in there. They're not a kind of straight ahead punk band like the Ramones. Certainly there were a lot more layers. We do,
2: we do play music like that. That's very fast with a lot of urgency. and But Steve's, it's really but more about his vocal phrasing and mm. everything. I and mean, He's, you know, he listens to. He's got a to, bit of a kind
1: of Mick Jagger kind of delivery in some yeah, places. But, you know, which comes from,
2: Howlin' wolf muddy waters Sonny boy williamson you know and sam cook and james brown and all that stuff you know that's that's where jagger got it from that's where M- little richard that's where mccartney got his thing from lennon i mean all those guys they were all influenced your people were all influenced by our people
1: yeah as yeah. the rock
2: and roll thing goes because we can actually say even though americans kind of a hodgepodge of cultures rock and roll started here mm. and so did jazz and blues and you know it's uh it's a nice it's a nice thing. So but getting back to your question, as far as the eaters go, I, I played with the eaters in the eighties.
0: Right. And, okay.
2: Yeah, I did a stint with them for two years in the eighties and I'll just tell you a quick little story. Mm. When the chair opened up and a friend of mine who was the guitar player in Willie Alexander and the Boom Boom Band in the seventies, Billy Licidian, he was playing with the Eaters at that time. He called me and said, Hey, the bass chair is opening up. Are you interested in auditioning? And I said, Yeah, you because know, I was just kind of freelancing at the time. Um so I talked to Steve and Steve said, "Well, before you audition for the Eaters, you have to play in my blues band." Okay. So he gave me a cassette tape of all the Chicago stuff, like a couple Sonny Boy tunes, some Wolf, some Muddy, and you know, I went down and he wanted to make sure that I could hang with that stuff because it's it's such an important thing to him, especially in the rhythm section for the Eaters, mm-hmm. that you have a, a sense of swing and that you understand all that. And I wasn't really I mean, I played a lot of blues now with a lot of international artists at this point in my career. But at that time, I you know, blues for me was like Zeppelin and Peter Green era Fleetwood Mac and early Jeff Beck. So mm-hmm. it was a real introduction to me. And I love telling that story because it just shows how deep Steve is. And the first time I did a gig with Hubert Sumlin, Holland Wolf's guitar player, who I played with a few times before he passed away, was with Steve
1: right okay
2: during that time
1: so it was quite a close-knit community of musicians there really if people are kind of switching in and out of roles and playing in each other's bands
2: oh yeah well you know it's it's boston geographically is a small town actually Mm. really, there's a lot of people here you know and it's like i've been living here since 78 so i'm very immersed in the the local scene and i can make a living playing bass you know just getting calls from various people Mm. So anyway, yeah, so I did, it, I did a stint with the Eaters in the 80s for a couple of years. We, I didn't do any records with them at that time. We did record. And Steve is, you know, because the band's been around for so long, he's kind of like the rock and roll version of Room Full of Blues, like, which I also played in for five years. Right. Uh, he's had, he has a long list of alumni of people that have been come through his group, you know. And, um, and now this time I've been back in the band since uh, 2020.
1: Okay. Right.
2: Right before the world shut down.
1: Yeah. So how, how was that to kind of come back in? I assume that you had plans to record and release um, singles and albums back then, but was that all kind of obviously pushed back to this year because of the pandemic and how did that kind of affect your livelihood? If you're a professional basis.
2: That was horrible. I mean, I lost everything. I mean, I, I'm, I'm still carrying a tremendous amount of credit card debt and stuff now, because I mean, I, I, you know, I've been making a living playing bass since 1975. So yeah, it's just what I do. And you know, even though there was some government subsidy, it wasn't enough. Mm. I had to take my social security early, all sorts of things, wow. so just to try to get by. Yeah. So yeah, yeah what happened was I, I was playing in Duke Robillard's band. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's a very well-known blues jazz guitar player from mm. the states. Has also toured and recorded with Bob Dylan, Tom Waits, and he's put out 35 records as a leader and he's the one that started on full of blues in 1968. Mm. so i'd given my notice to him because i'd done 12 years with him and done a lot of records with him and it was just time to move on and uh steve called me like two days later we've always stayed in touch yeah i mean because a songwriter he's constantly writing because he has to he's the real deal Mm. you know and he you know he would send me songs hey what do you think of this song even though i wasn't working with him you know and you know, he called me. We didn't talk on the phone that much, maybe a couple times a year, but he called me and said, Hey, my bass player just left. Do you know anybody that's a good bass player that's looking for a job? And I said, Well, as a matter of fact, I, I just gave my notes to Duke and he goes, Really? So, you know, the next thing I know, we're getting together and uh, you know, he's playing me his new songs and and we got together and we did one gig and then that was March seventh of twenty twenty and everything just shut yeah. down. You yeah. know. So we rehearsed for a while and and then because the pandemic was on fire and everybody was nervous about getting sick and really people didn't really know much about COVID at that time. Mm. Everybody thought everybody was going to die.
1: There was that element of like, do we go out? If I pass someone in the street, am I going to get it off them? No one knew, did they? Yeah, exactly. If you're holding a handrail that someone else has held, is that how you're going to get it?
2: Exactly. <laughs> this is crazy. So, so we stopped rehearsing for a while and, uh, and then we, you know, when things started to kind of clear up and, you know, everything, people started getting vaccinated and all that. We mm. got back together in the summer of 2020. Right. And we started rehearsing again. And then it was my idea. I said, hey, let's, let's do it. Let's go in the studio. Let's cut a couple of songs. Those are good songs. So we did. And it came out really good. And there's a mutual friend of the band's. His name is Steve Berkowitz. I don't know if you ever heard of him, but he's huge in the industry. He was the head of Sony Legacy for 20 years. Okay. He knows everybody. He, he did all the box sets and all the remasters for Sony, like Dylan, Miles Davis, Leonard Cohen, wow. just tons of stuff. And he's a very dear friend of mine, because when I was in ministry in the 80s, he worked for Lookout Management, and he was the East Coast rep for them, Elliot Roberts. And Elliot Roberts managed Joni Mitchell, Tom Petty, Crosby Stills Nash Young, The Cars, which were based out of Boston, and Ministry, yeah. so he paid me every week, so I got to be very good friends with him because he gave me a check. Yeah, week. yeah. And then, but but going back, he was the road manager for Willie Alexander and the Boom Boom Band in 1975, 1976, and David McLean, our drummer in the Eaters, was in the Boom Boom Band, so he knew <laughs> Steve. He goes way back with Steve Berkowitz produced a video for a band called The Souls out of Boston, which Adam Sherman was in, our other guitar player. So he knows Steve. And Steve Cataldo, the leader of the band, singer, songwriter, mm. guitar player, goes way back with Berkowitz because Rick Okasik was responsible for getting the Eaters the deal on Electra in 1978-79. Something like that. I think the record came out around 1980. But mm. So anyway, we have a long history with him. i am just giving you a little background. When I was playing with Duke, because Steve is, is really, uh, he had a moniker called T-Blade, because he's right. a blue guitar player, Steve Berkowitz. And yes. he would come and see Duke a lot when we were down in New York or if he was visiting his brother in 40, come see us. So anyway, it was a natural thing for me to give it to him because we're, we, we all know him. We're close. We're good friends. And he's very connected. And he loved it. He said, just send me one song. So I sent him a tune off the record that made their album called the End of the World Girl, and it's a real rocker. And he loved it. And he said, okay, send me the other two. And he goes, I know just who I'm going to send this to. I'm going to send it to Steve Van Zandt because he's the champion of like keeping real rock and roll alive. Yeah. And Van Zandt loved it, and we had a deal in 24 hours.
1: Wow. Because I was going to say, like, signing to Stephen Van Zandt's Wicked Cool record label, that's kind of a a seal of approval on its own really because he seems to have his ear to the ground at the moment and he's signing lots of bands that are from all over you know different kind of age ranges and and styles but they've all got a kind of hard rocking workhorse like uh, mentality you know they, they seem like hard working rock and roll bands and yeah. um, I think he's got great taste and the, the stable of wicked cool artists seems to be where you want to be.
2: Yeah, he's, you know, I mean, if you listen to The Underground Garage, which mm. I actually got a subscription to Sirius just because I knew we were going to get a lot of airplay. Mm. And I was like, geez, I got probably over 10,000 records and CDs. I could sell my collection and just listen to that radio station. I'd be <laughs> all set. if so he doesn't play any jazz or anything. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, so his, his roster of bands are, you know, roots-oriented rock and roll bands, like kind mm. of, you know, like the Chesterfield Kings, kind of the 60s. I don't know if they're still together anymore, but that type Mm. of group Mm. and then, you know, some more alternative stuff. And yeah, he really liked the eaters because he he sees a lot of different things in in us, you know. and uh, Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's
1: it's cool. And and the latest single, of course, that came out last month was Wild Eyes, which yeah. I think is a genuinely brilliant song. I love it. I've been listening to Thank it on so rotation much. the last few days in preparation for this. And I just think you can hear it's much more kind of based in roots, rock and roll than the uh, the kind of earlier, more fast paced eaters stuff. But like you say, it's got a real swing to it. It sounds kind of Springsteen-esque or like E Street-esque. I could hear them playing a version of it. But yeah, so how has the release of that been? Of people other than Stephen Van Zandt, of course, has it been getting airplay? Many other places.
2: Yeah, it has, and and people are embracing it. You know, I mean, it's Tom, it's it's a tough road. I mean, rock and roll Mm. music is pretty much dead. Yeah, I I hate to say, compared to how it was when I was a kid, and you know, all all of these advanced technologies that we have now are, are are really useful and helpful, and they're fun, and everybody likes them. But they've also kind of ruined the imagination. With a lot of younger people i feel and i'm not saying that to be critical i'm just saying it's i'm just observing mm. the human condition here and but yeah people people like the song a lot and uh but it's you know it's a real uphill battle mm. breaking you know basically a new band i mean we're known regionally and somewhat nationally and somewhat over in europe you know on a, on a very cult type of level but mm. you know for us to actually go out and tour especially because we're all older guys we're not going to do it unless it, it really makes sense to do it and we can be somewhat comfortable yeah we're not getting a pan to go sleep on people's couches and stuff you know what i mean to, just to do gigs
1: no i know i'm i joined a kind of legacy band at the end of last year and they're still very much like all in a van together i've got a gig on saturday coming where the four of us are staying in a youth hostel room all four of us in one room, you know, one of those kind of situations. And uh, yeah, it's uh, I, (laughs) I think I had a slightly more rose tinted view of things for certain legacy bands where you think, Oh, well they'll get a, they'll get individual hotel rooms. It's not like that. It's all about saving as much money as possible, isn't it? Because like you say, there's so much new music out there. There's so much, Because anyone can make music in their bedroom and put it out on Spotify pretty easily, put it out on Apple Music pretty easily. The traditional gatekeepers of the record companies don't really exist so much anymore. And so as much as that's great for getting your own stuff out there, if you're an aspiring musician, like you say, it it swamps everyone else, doesn't it?
2: Well, yeah, well, I mean, the market is completely oversaturated with product. I mean, so what happens here is People just don't have, they don't have patience or the attention span. Like, you know, you got a new record and they're like, yeah, everybody's got a new record, you know, mm. uh, and it's, it, yeah, it, it's certainly more challenging, but you know, I'm a lifer. I've been doing this my whole life since I was 18. I've been on the road, uh, you know, I was on the road two weeks after I graduated high school and, and I've made over, I've been on over 200 released recordings myself and toured the world with many different artists. And it's just what I do. And it's, you know, uh, and I'm going to keep doing it. And I, I really believe in Steve's writing. So yeah, so Wild Eyes, it's, you know, we came out strong for the mm. first song. Wicked Cool is going to release five singles before the album drops. So right. the second single gets released at the end of August and it'll just go like that. Mm. Wild Eyes is the only song that's on a hard copy. It's on red vinyl on an actual 45. So Oh, wow. I want to say to all you people out there that are listening to this, please buy a copy of it. You can either go to our page nervouseaters.net and you can get it there, or you can go to Wicked Cool's Bandcamp page and buy it there. But we believe in the hard copy. Mm-hmm. Now, streaming's all fine and dandy, but come on.
1: Well there's something um I like the tangibility of physical media still, you know, mm-hmm. like I, I love having a piece of vinyl or a CD or just having the artwork to flick through. I mean it always used to be that thing of not without trying to sound too old, <laughs> but, you know, you'd get on a bus into town or something or you'd walk into town and you'd pick the record up and you wouldn't necessarily know what it sounded like. And you'd be looking at the artwork on the way home, yeah, trying to figure out exactly how the songs are going to sound from the lyrics on the sleeve. And you get it home and you put it on and you listen to it as a piece of work. If it's an album, it's from start to back, as the artist intended it. And uh, yeah. yeah, there's like a ceremony almost that you went through. And uh, yeah, I still believe in that as well. And I would 100% encourage the listeners to go out and uh, and buy it on physical release because it's well worth it.
2: And it supports the artist. Yeah. You no, know? it really does.
1: Yeah. It's not, you're not getting like half a cent from a stream or something, you know? Right.
2: I mean, you know, it's <laughs> like 17 million streams is like a couple grand. Yeah. You know what I mean? For revenue for a band, whereas if you sold five million records you're all set you know mm. what I mean? so it's just you know i believe in the hard copy i like books i like lps i like cds mm. you know tangible like you said tangible things and it's a piece of work you know that the artist has really put their heart and soul into mm. So i think it's important to support that you know so many people don't even have cd players anymore I mean, they don't even put them in cars anymore and
1: now the cd player in my car is hidden away in the glove box
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: so what uh what's the name of the next single because i think the name of the album is monsters and angels right that's correct yeah um so the the single that's coming out the end end of august can you tell us what the name of that single
2: it's called superman's hands okay and it's uh it's 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 even a little more pop than wild eyes i mean right. we look at wild eyes as you know kind of a tom petty it has a non-petty vibe because of the 12 string and Mm. the way the keyboards are kind of Ben Montage type setups for the different sections of the tune, but it's still a rock and roll song. And, and so is Superman's hands, but Superman's hands is very, it's got a real strong message because you know, when you hear it, you'll see, but it it basically me is the message of that tune is it's okay to be who you are. You don't have to be Superman to be, okay with yourself. And I think, you know, one of the biggest problems in the world here, and I'm not going to get on a pedestal and start talking about politics certainly or anything like that. But one of the problems in the world is is that you know, people are really insecure, they're fearful, so they transfer all of that crap on other people mm-hmm. because they don't feel okay about themselves. And that's really what it all comes back to. And so this tune is kind of a message like you know, like in the in the bridge the lyrics are um I don't need a cape to fly. I don't need to shoot lasers from my eyes. I don't need the strength of 10 kryptonic men. And all that stuff means is that it's okay just to be tongue.
1: Yeah, yeah, or
2: yeah. Man or whoever we're talking about here. Mm. Just be yourself and be secure in your insecurities. Be perfect in your imperfections. It's
1: okay. Excellent. You are enough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love that. That's brilliant. And I think it certainly speaks to a lot of things, like you say, going on in the world at the moment. But also, I think in the last couple of years, people have realised quite how damaging society can be in certain ways. And again, without getting too political or onto specific ways that the world is run. But, you know, the rat race, for example, is quite damaging in some cases. And it was nice in, in a way to kind of get off that treadmill for a few months at the beginning of 2020 and just look at the way that the seasons changed and how the air was clearer with fewer planes in the sky and listening to the birds. And there was something about that that really had a rejuvenating effect on a lot of people, I think.
2: Yeah. Oh, no, it was nice to take a walk and not even see a car.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think it talks to a lot of a lot of people's experience. So yeah, looking forward to hearing that one. Yes. And um, so there's four more singles, including Superman's hands, the rest of the year. So when yeah. is uh, the album Monsters and Angels out? Is that coming up at the end of the year, kind of towards yeah. December
2: or? Perhaps November.
1: Okay, brilliant. Well, we'll be looking out for that as well, and I'll be sure to be sharing them as well. I And I assume, like you say, there's going to be a mix of styles represented on the album because that's kind of what The Nervous Eaters is about, isn't it? It's not about one particular.
2: There are some some real hard rocking tunes on the record and there's there's still that element from, you know, I mean, I hate to say like punk rock because Mm. to me, punk is an attitude. That's what it is. It's an attitude of change. You know, that music had to happen at that time because music needed a massive overhaul. Yeah, and, and it really opened a lot of doors for people. But I look at like, I look at Louis Armstrong as punk. I look at Charlie Parker as punk. I look at the Beatles as punk, the Stones, mm-hmm. because they changed music. And it's it's really about an attitude, you yeah. know? So you don't have to like dye your hair green and, you know, but I like that and I'm glad people did. And, you know, whatever else you want to do to express yourself, is it's a beautiful thing, you know? But the Eaters embraced... All of that, you know, and to know that, you know, you don't have to be safe to be safe. Mm-hmm. You can just do it, you know. And uh, yeah, so it's a 10 song record. It's got all different sorts of styles. And there's certainly a couple of songs that are really rock. And one of them will be the last single, which is called End of the World Girl, which is a straight out. And that was the tune that I first sent to Steve Berkowitz and uh, Steve Van Zandt heard first. And uh, you know they loved that that tune, so and that's the last song on the record.
1: Right. Oh, that will be interesting to hear that then, because those yeah. that's the one that got you the you know two and a half
2: minute freak of just guitars and screaming.
1: Excellent, excellent. <laughs> so there's life in the old dogs yet. That's what I like oh, to hear.
2: Definitely.
1: Um, and talking of which, you've got a couple of gigs lined up for the rest of the year. Are you looking to add more dates to those, or again, yeah. is it just whatever makes sense for you guys, really?
2: I mean, what it, you know, you can't oversaturate your our local market, so we can only play around here a little bit. And then, as far as going out of town goes, we can only do it if it's financially feasible.
0: Mm. Um,
2: you know what I mean. So what we're doing right now is we're just we're working on trying to get an agent. You know, I mean, it takes a village to break a record, and, and basically, we're a new band to break a new band, like to the the general, the overall general population. Yeah, and so. We're working on trying to get an agency that believes in the band as much as we do and that will, like, say, hey, call the Foo Fighters management and say, hey, listen, man, you got to put these guys on the opening slot for two months, and if you do that, I'll do this for you. And that's really kind of how it works, you know, people behind the scenes that are kind of doing favors for each other. And if you don't have that these days, it's pretty tough to, you know, make things work. But, yeah, we, we would we would love to. I mean, we want to turn this into – a working band you know that's that's the whole idea mm,
1: mm. and i suppose as well having those connections from years gone by you guys could be in a pretty good place to to make that kind of thing work hopefully
2: well we hope so <laughs> you know, and when
1: stuff. when you play live is there a mix of old and new stuff or is it predominantly oh,
2: oh, oh yeah, yeah yeah No, we play we play stuff from the electro record like we play last chance we play which actually we re-recorded on the new record right? because it's such a strong song and it sounds Mm. killer. We play Last Chance, Girl Next Door. We obviously play Loretta. Yeah. Uh, And then we play off Hot Steel and Acid. We play Got a Hold on It, No More Idols. Uh, We play... um, good times gone right you know yeah so the last part of it we play just head which is one of the early rat singles mm. we play where's johnny which has never been oh, it was actually recorded on the record before this but it's a very old song um
1: oh excellent that would be great because it's just yeah just taking it from everywhere i love that yeah i mean we've already kind of touched on a couple of the bands that you were in previously to this but to get more of an idea of where you came from musically i guess like do you remember the first song that you heard that made you think that you wanted to do this as a career like make music your career
2: yeah it was probably february 9th 1964 when i saw the beatles on ed sullivan when i was seven years old and i heard all my loving and i was just like oh my god listen to that what a sound you know and and you know tom it's interesting because I haven't really ever thought about it that much until I started doing a, a lot of these interviews and podcasts and talking about, because that's a question that a lot of people ask, you know, how did you get started? And, and it's it's really clear to me that I knew as a kid that that's what I wanted to do. Right. And at the time, I was probably playing a tone at, you know, a plastic recorder and learning Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star and sure. all the cool melodies. And those those are an important part of your development as far as you're getting your ear going, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, You know, I've done a lot of teaching over the years. And when I talk to, you students, I I talk to them about learning those melodies because, you know, being able to sing them, they're important to learn. Yeah. So, you know, and then it then it just went from, you know, I played string bass in the orchestra in grade school and junior high school and then started playing in rock bands towards the end of junior high school. And it just kept going.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think the first musical instrument I learned to play was a recorder. Plastic yep. recorder playing well, exactly that.
2: Everybody got that, like the the, the black plastic recorder with a little yeah, music book. That's I think right. I got it second grade.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. And it's interesting because we were talking about obviously like the Beatles were influenced and the Stones were influenced by American rock and R and B acts from years gone by. It's interesting though that the Beatles and Stones kind of an, and a couple of other the British invasion bands repackaged it in a way that was so popular with U.S. audiences as well. I've been trying to think, like, what was it that sounded different about those bands from the U.S. artists that they originally were influenced by? What was it that was so...
2: I mean, if if you think about, like, the covers that the Beatles did, for instance, like, you know, Mr. Postman and, you know, some Little Richard tunes and, you know, the Stones and the Beatles both did a lot of Arthur Alexander tunes. You Better Move On and, you know, songs like that. So there was that. And, you know, I like a lot of american kids learned about our heritage you know the american roots music through you guys and through the bands bringing it back over here Mm. so i think you know one of the things about i mean what excited me about the stones and the beatles was their original material that they were writing especially the beatles i mean right away they just were like holy crap i want to hold your hand i mean you know it's still so vibrant when you hear it on the radio you just want the sound of the guitars and you know and their voices and it was so fresh mm. you know i don't i don't know you know uh <laughs> you know i don't know why exactly why that does that but it does it and it did it
1: have you seen the beatles documentary on disney plus the get back documentary oh,
2: yeah i own it i got it on dvd of course it's
1: incredible isn't it i mean yeah. you sit there and you see especially paul being so prolific in that space of time he basically writes two albums worth of material as well as his own a couple of his own songs that would appear on solo albums down the line and, and it's the same with the other guys as well but it, it was interesting to see them just hanging around being guys at the same time
2: was interesting is that they were goofing off most of the time almost <laughs> the entire time and then they get on the rooftop and and like three or four of those songs end up being like masters for let it be you know what i mean like I mean, they did when they did "I Dig a Pony," and it's just like, thats the take yeah. that they used on the record. Yeah. And and but they never even alluded to the fact that they were going to sound that good when they were rehearsing down in the studio because they were too busy fucking off the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Ringo's farting, and you know, so I farted, you know. And they're doing this, and they're doing that. They're just—they're just taking the piss out of songs. They even had a jam with Yoko a couple of times. Yeah. That they all joined in on, you know. and It's uh, you know. It's, they, were, uh, they were something else. I mean, what's really amazing about them, Tom? Six, six and a half years. They did from She Loves You to Let It Be, six and a half years. They did that, that body of work. Mm. Yeah,
1: it's incredible. You can't think of another band that was around for that short amount of time that went through that many changes and completely changed the face of pop music forever, basically. world. So when you you said like literally two weeks out of high school you were on the road. I mean, how did that kind of go down with your parents? Were they musical at all? Were they were they worried about you?
2: <laughs> yeah, of course they did, and and they didn't really want me to do that. I'm the oldest, and I think they were kind of hoping that I was going to wear an Izod shirt. You know what that is? That's like a, a preppy shirt. You know, yeah, like yeah. I was going to be a preppy guy and maybe you know go to college and. You know, even my mother, who's a very good musician. My parents are both still alive, 92 and 91 now. Oh, wow. Uh, My mother's always been an advocate. Like when I was in ministry, she used to come and see us. I remember we were playing with the Psychedelic Furs on doing a bunch of shows. And and she had a long talk with Richard Butler. It was hilarious. Like they they really (laughs) bonded. and You know, anyway. Yeah, they, they were concerned about it. And my father in particular wasn't, he's not really a musical guy. and He wasn't too psyched about it. But I knew that's what I was going to do. And, you know, I went on the road before I graduated high school in 1975. It was probably a few weeks before I graduated. There was a booking agency in Bridgeport, Connecticut. I was living in Fairfield, Connecticut at the time. I looked up their address. I went over there. I walked into the office, and there's this guy named Dick Grass. with glasses down over his nose, smoking a cigar. He looks up at me. He goes, what can I do for you, kid? And I said, oh, I'm looking for a gig. And he goes, you're looking for a gig? He goes, well, are you any good? And I said, yeah, I'm pretty good. Give me your phone number. So I gave my phone number. I went home. About two hours later, I get a call from this guy, DJ, who's got a GB band, Top 40 band, because at that time in 75, every hotel had a lounge, and every lounge had a band, and you played five sets a night, and so he said, hey, I got your number from Dick Grass. Are you any good? I love it when they ask you that. Like, what are you going (laughs) to say? No, suck. No. (laughs) (laughs) But... I didn't feel too, I didn't feel too confident to say, yeah, I'm great. You know, yeah. but I just, uh, so he said, well, why don't you play me something? I said, what do you mean right now over the phone? And he goes, yeah, play me something over the phone. And I was like, okay. So <laughs> I played a little thing, you know, and he goes, all right, you got the job. And he picked me up like two weeks later and he drove to Pennsylvania overnight. I started that night. And at that time, mm-hmm. Earth, Wind & Fire, Rufus, Average White Band, Stevie Wonder, all the disco stuff, Hall & It was the bass player's, I mean, it was like going to school.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I was
2: going to school. I went to school big time because everybody I was working with was in their 30s. I was 18. Unfortunately, I learned how to drink, too. But that's another story. Let's <laughs> talk about that now. But but uh, yeah, so, you know, I, I mean, I got thrown into it, you know, and those baselines are very, you know, as you know, are very advanced baselines. And, yeah. uh, you know, I did the best I could and learned a lot. And, and I did that for two years with three different bands with that agency. Wow. And then finally I had enough. 1978. I had left in the spring of seventy eight and I, I went to uh my parents had then since then moved to Kentucky and I went down there for the summer and hung out with them and then I was like, Okay, I'm going to New York or Boston. I gotta play original music. I knew one person in Boston, so Boston got the short straw and I my my dad actually drove me from Kentucky to Boston and you know, within a couple of days I danced with an ad in the Phoenix and joined a Boston band that is a pretty well-known group around here during that time period Paul pastiche okay. uh, and mr kurt who is a very dear friend of mine still was the singer songwriter he had a couple of singles out already at that time and yes yeah, so you know then it just it went from there and
1: the interesting one that stands out that you mentioned a couple of times was ministry i mean for me i've always known ministry as a kind of industrial metal band but they started out as like a synth pop act didn't they
2: well, i was in the group because yeah. I'm, I'm on the With Sympathy album and the Twitch album. That's which, right. Which, so when I joined the band, what happened was, so Pastiche, I was in that band, and then I was in a couple other bands, including this band called Adventure Set. And one night we were playing at this venue down by Fenway Park, where the Red play, and um, my girlfriend was there with me at the time. And I see these two guys, like, hitting up on her while I'm playing. I'm getting kind of pissed off. <laughs> so down the break, I went up and I was like, how's it going, fellas? My girlfriend, you know, and they're like, "Oh hell, oh oh, <laughs> hey, pretty good bass playing up there, man." It was Vince Ely from the Psychedelic Furs and Ian Taylor, wow. two English guys. You know what I mean? I don't know if you know who Ian is. He was with Thomas Baker, man, and so and they were producing with sympathy. They were at the Synchro Sound working with doing the record, and they said, "Hey, man, we need a we need a bass player to play on a couple of tracks. Can you come down?" I said, "Yeah, sure." So I went down. Long story short, and and Al dug the way I played, and so I. I he asked me if I wanted to join the band. Mm. I did. And, you know, I kept my place in Boston, but also moved to Chicago. And as a result of being at Synchro all the time, I got to be very good friends with Rick and Elliot and Ben Orr and all the guys in the cars. And Rick hired mm. me to do a number of sessions, including Iggy Pop and some other stuff. And, and I ended up playing Elliot's solo record. Uh, so, yeah, it was a good run there with those guys. I was with Al and, and the band for about three years.
1: Doing live tours and stuff as well. Yeah. And like you say, you were on Elliot Easton's solo record, Jane Wealdon from the Go-Go's, Iggy Pop.
2: Which, which Vince was producing her first record. And that's why I got that call to go out to LA right. and play her record. And uh, yeah, ended up recording and touring with Amy Mann from around mm. that time. And
1: Susan Tadeshi? Yep yeah because um the tedeschi trucks band is something that's come up a number of times for me over the past couple of years i'd never heard of them until like a few years ago and now i just think they're brilliant i didn't actually realize that they had solo stuff as well so i'm oh, yeah. i'm going away and having a look at those too
2: and i was on the road with her i mean we played 1500 to 2000 seat venues sold out on our own at the the record that she made for twenty thousand dollars By the time I joined the group, it was already gold. And it ended up selling about 800,000 copies. But I was there when she met Derek and because I joined the band, the bass player I replaced was Tommy Shannon, who was uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan's bass player. Mm -hmm. He was doing the gig before me. And also he played with Johnny Winner too. So I joined in the middle of her when she had just met Derek and they were on the road with the Allman Brothers. So uh, my first gig was in Phoenix, I believe, but I flew into Austin. To watch the last gig that Tommy did because he's a Texas guy. And, uh yeah. So yeah it was a good that was a good
1: run, you know. And uh and then it's been, you know, like you say, it's a bit of a who's who then it kind of went into the kind of more bluesy area with Duke Robillard room full of blues which is multiple Grammy nominated. Yeah. But also there was a band called the Joneses as well that you set up at one point too, which
2: uh Yeah so that group was billy Lesigian from so i remember when i told you when i first joined the eaters Lesigian, the guitar player from the boom boom band mm. the boom boom band who this guy i mean i don't know how familiar you are with your british rock guitar players from the 60s like paul kossoff from free and jeff Beck and jimmy page and Clapton. Yeah, yeah during that time period late 60s he embodies that sound unbelievable I mean, he's just he's a less ball guy so him and i left the eaters the first time I was with Steve and we started that band, the Joneses and we got signed fairly quickly to Atlantic and Ahmed Erdogan signed us personally. And he really loved the band because the singer sounded kind of like Paul Rogers. And we had this kind of free bad co thing going, hmm. the thing was kind of prevalent. And, uh, yeah, so that we did that. And that was, that was a, that was a really fun, good band short lived, but, uh,
1: Yeah, I was going to say, it was only around for about, what, a year, 18 months, something like that?
2: A year, year and a half. Yeah, there was... Ahmed's brother passed away, and he went back to Turkey to go in the morning, and he put this guy in charge, the the second guy at Atlantic, Doug Morris, Mm. and they, him and our manager did not get along. Right. And uh, he basically just told everybody at Atlantic, okay, the Joneses are done, we're not promoting them anymore. He just even though we were, we were screaming up the charts. I mean, we were getting all these ads on FM stations and we were doing okay, you know, but he just,
1: it's a relationship game, isn't it? That's the thing. And if you don't, if you don't get on with people, it can be, uh, it can be tricky.
2: So it's such, such as the way in in life, you know, in businesses in general and, you know,
1: Mm. and that's why you should, I think you should always be nice to people. You should always be accommodating because you never know when you're going to meet them again.
2: <laughs> you know, the people on the way up as you do on the way down. That's and, the one. You know, kind of like our conversation that we we're having about Superman's hands. If you have a decent relationship with yourself, you know, which is a lot of work. To be honest with yourself and to have some spiritual. And I'm not talking religious here. I'm just talking about awareness of mm. who you are as a person and your defects and your assets and all of the things that you know go into the human condition. That stuff, you know, if you have an awareness about that and you're okay with that stuff, you're going to do okay you know, in relationships with other people, even difficult people that don't have that awareness, you know? Yeah. You know, if we all strove to have that, the world would be such a better place.
1: You're absolutely right. You're on the same page as me at the moment. This has been something that I've been working on the last couple of years as well. And it's, uh, yeah, it's very much a message that's close to my heart at the moment. So Yeah, we're on the same wavelength. So what's your favorite style to play anyway? I mean, what's the thing that when you get home from a a session in the studio or a tour that you've been out on, what do you play to help you relax or maybe just put on rather than play it?
2: Well, I mean, you can see there's a lot of CDs behind me here, but that's just one wall. All these walls (laughs) here, the walls out in the other room, they're all just covered. I I probably have 10,000 CDs around and then a bunch of vinyl, so I mean, and I have a huge collection of various genres. I mean, as a bass player, you know, I, I I'm a I'm a Fender bass guy, even though I have Voxes, Harmonies, K's, Hofners, Rickenbackers. I I I have like 46 electric basses or something. They're all, <laughs> wow. they're all tools that I love, you know, and they do different things. But I'm a, I'm a precision guy, mm. and I have a, a few pre CBS B bases. Yeah, no, James Jamerson to me is the king. He's the man. Who started it all without him there's nobody uh, but I love all the guys that he influenced in the states like Tommy Cogbill Jerry Jamont, Chuck Rainey Duck Dunn Ronnie Baker as far as R&B guys go but then there's across the pond there's all your guys like John Paul Jones who's to me probably the greatest rock bass player of all time I love D. Murray from the early Elton John stuff he's yeah. amazing totally amazing of course Paul McCartney so you know what I'm listening to lately, as I've been kind of going back to like older music from the era that you know, uh, 70s. Like, mm. not I have old music, but I'm talking about. So I've been listening to like Kate Bush, I've, right. a lot of Kate Bush. I've been listening to, and not because of Stranger Things. I, don't really <laughs> watch that, so. I know she got a big bump because of that, but no, just I've been listening to her. I've been listening to some Sonic Youth. I've been listening to, you know. But then, you know, I, I'll pull out, you know, my favorite music as a, as an electric bassist and what I love is Southern Soul. Right. I love Muscle Shoals. I love Stacks. I love high records. My favorite, though, of all time is the American Studios. Tommy Cogbell is my hero. Right. I do, okay. I
1: yeah, I am. Yeah, yeah.
2: So he's on all the early Aretha Atlantic stuff. Yeah. He's on the Elvis Presley Memphis stuff like, you know, Suspicious Minds, Kentucky Rain, Ghetto. He's on all the box top stuff he's just killer Mm. i mean he's just you know and during the beginning of the pandemic if you look on youtube look up the roots of electric bass and put in and you'll see and i put together a 55 minute clip of my favorite bass players and i used a green screen so i could put their pictures up behind me it's it's like a documentary
1: oh wow you can
2: find it there and i did a hundred transcriptions just to stay busy I transcribed a hundred songs and I did a, a song every day for a hundred days. And I did start off with Jameson and I went into Cogbill and I did like 50 Cogbills. And result as well as of doing that, this guy reached out to me from Nashville who worked with Tommy He said, wow, man, you're really nailing his sound and his style. I, I worked with Tommy and I know him. Would you like to meet his daughter? And I said, yeah. So he did an introduction and I ended up talking on the phone with Tommy Cogbill's, 'Cause he passed away really young. He was like fifty old guy. And I, I but I ended up talking to his widow and his daughter. His wow. widow Curly, is no longer with us either. She's passed away since then too. But I had some beautiful conversations with them and I stay in touch with Sharon fairly regularly, just on email we talk and, you know.
1: That's um, incredible. Yeah. And that's one of the great things about the internet, isn't it? If, yeah, if it, your if that, your passion for something shines through, it can be seen by those people yeah. who are involved. Absolutely! Oh wow, I'm definitely going to have to check that out because I, as you know, play bass as well, and um, yeah, that'll be an education for me as well. I'll I'll, uh, I'll be checking that out directly that we finish this conversation. I think. Have to good dig
2: Roots of electric bass. Yeah, put it in.
1: Find it. Bringing us around to the present day. I mean, what's the future now for both the eaters and and yourself? Like, I suppose you know, a couple of gigs with the eaters for the rest of the year, promotion, that kind of thing trying to
2: break the record, Tom. That's why you and I are sitting here today, you know, just to try to get the word out there, you know, and I'm doing a ton of these things and really grateful to people like yourself that are, you know, on a on a grassroots level. Because really, you know, breaking a rock and roll band these days, it's brick by brick and it's a grassroots approach. Mm-hmm. I mean and so much work has to be put into it by the artist because you don't really get that kind of support anymore from a label, you know, like I mean, wicked cool is they're they're being good to us and they're, it's good, you know. But it's more of a distribution deal than a record deal. Sure. And it's it's a different thing, you know. You don't get the big advances anymore. and They don't have a budget for tour support, or you know, that, that's those days are over, at mm. least right now. Uh, so what we're doing is we're doing videos for the singles. Like we we uh, yesterday we we shot all the band footage for Superman's Hands, and uh, so the videographer will start the editing process soon and you know along with some stock footage you know put together a cool presentation and a cool envelope for the song and uh so we're doing that and i'm doing these and we're rehearsing and you know a couple gigs here and there and we also steve is writing and uh adam sherman the other guitar player is also writing is a really good songwriter so we're we're going to be starting to work on it we have a lot of new material that's demoed but we haven't really started working it up as a group yet but we will be starting that soon in hopes of, you know, having a sophomore release, you know, with Wicked Cool and... But, you know, our, our, what we're really trying to do now is just... The best promotion that we can do is to get on the road, play live. That is the best promotion we can do, and it's a, it's a very... It's like between a rock and a hard place, you know, getting that ball rolling, because you have to be known in order to get the gigs that pay, that can make it viable to do it. Yeah. You know, so really what it takes is what we were talking about earlier. Somebody that believes in you, that has power, that can pull some favors to get the ball rolling. Cause once, you know, you get out there and, you know, Sam sees the band and tells Joe and Joe tells Sally and Sally tells June and June tells Sue and Sue tells Robin. And once the girls are coming, <laughs> <you gotta pay. laughs> you know, cause once the, girls come, the guys come and then, you, you know, you've got, Coming <laughs> to
1: see it. So. <laughs> That's brilliant. I love that. I hope that it works out that way. I hope that you manage to get something as a kind of opener for someone like the Foo Fighters, perhaps. Although I don't know what they're doing these days. I'm sure something will happen. I mean, like it's it's undeniable the the talent in that band. I mean, the wow, fact of the so. matter is, you wouldn't still be going as individuals and a group if the talent wasn't there and from just the first single wild eyes the fact that it's released with Loretta on the b-side as well like it kind of shows an evolution in a way but also like the roots of where the band came from I think it's like the perfect thing because obviously Loretta is the biggest single I think or the most well-known I would yep. say and having that on there it, it kind of gives you it's a little kind of taster almost of the the new versus the old
2: He's, Berkowitz calls it the smallest box set known to man.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. That's so true. <laughs> so,
2: so, but you know what, Tom? We do this for the same reason you do it. One reason, because we love it, and That's because, it. and and the, and the other reason is because we have to. We have to do it. We have to rock. We have to write. We have to play. It's like it's. There's no real explanation for it except such a deep passion and love for it to keep it going and it's like survival to some degree you know i mean you obviously do this because you love it
0: yeah you know absolutely
2: yourself but you're you're you know you're interested in continuing to carry the message out there
1: yeah this is it i mean like my my kind of journey in the last couple of years has been you know starting this and being able to talk with other musicians from all around the world because zoom is now a thing has been brilliant it's opened my net up to meet people that i wouldn't otherwise have been able to reach and also like i say doing this has also allowed me to join that legacy act that i was talking about they're a punk band from the uk called sham 69 oh really you're playing with Sham 69 yeah yeah <laughs> yeah oh that is cool man i didn't know i didn't i didn't know the group that
2: you were talking about when you were saying legacy group so Sham 69. yeah those guys it's... i mean in the day, I mean, they were getting in the Boston area, getting as much airplay on all the college stations as you know, the Jam, the Clash, the Buzzcocks. I mean, they mm. were wow.
1: It's lovely to be playing those songs to people who love the music and oh, stuff. Yeah. So, and it's a band as well that I've been listening to since I was small. Punk music is my thing, and uh, certainly, it's 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 a strange twist of fate that through this, I interviewed one of the guys who's in that band. And then the bassist opportunity came up at the end of last year and they were like, Oh, well, do you want to come in and try out, learn yeah. 40 songs in four weeks and uh, we'll try you out. And so, yeah, it's, it's been a, it's been an interesting couple of years. That's for sure. <laughs> Good
2: for you. Man.
1: But Brad, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today and yeah, I wish yeah. you all the best with the Eaters and any other musical endeavors that you're on. And hopefully if there's a UK tour or something, you'll have to let me know. Oh, of course, of course. Yeah, let's stay in touch. Yeah, and if people want to find out, obviously we said about going to the NervousEaters.net or Wicked Cool Bandcamp to buy the single on physical release. But where else can they find Nervous Eaters online if they want to follow you yeah, and that's, get in touch?
2: That, that's, that's the place to go is NervousEaters.net because we have everything there, you know, like the usual, you know, tour page, shop, For merchandise you know and and just news you know basically what's happening and all that stuff so
1: cool go and buy merch (laughs) support the band (laughs) brilliant well thank you so much brad it's been a pleasure
2: oh tom thanks for having me i really appreciate it talk to you soon all right take care bye-bye now
1: there you go what a lovely man brad is i think you'll agree I'd love to have had longer with him to really get into the time he spent in each of the bands he's been involved with. He's basically had a career in each of them and it would be such a rich story to tell. Unfortunately I had an unexpected family thing that ate into our start time and Brad had an appointment to keep later on that day but he was still gracious enough to sit and chat with me about basses and seemed really interested in what I was up to even after I'd stopped recording. We're Bass Brothers now and we're definitely going to stay in touch which is lovely. I hope he'll come back on the show at some point in the future so I can mine some more rich stories from him. Special thanks once again go to Peter Ferrioli at Pantheon Podcasts and Mike Kubillos at Earshot Media and most of all to Brad for giving up his time and being such a gentleman about my last minute request to move the start time of the interview. What a class act he is. Again You can find Nervous Eaters at their website, NervousEaters.net, on Facebook.com slash nervousEaters, and on Instagram at Nervous.Eaters. And you can find Brad Helene at his website, BradHelene.com. Do comment on and share the post for this episode on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, and go to Apple Podcasts to leave a review and a five-star rating. Until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Band Biographies. If you enjoyed it, please don't forget to leave a 5-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts. Please do reach out on Twitter at Bandbiogs, Instagram at Bandbiographies, search on Facebook for band biographies, or by emailing bandbiographies at gmail.com. See you next time.